Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. Last week, I experimented with the length of the podcast and didn't hear any negative comments from any of you. So let's see how the longer format feels today. In this week's podcast, you'll hear a love story from Paraguay to New York City, a mysterious voice that manifests into reality on a forest service road late one night, a party in the front row at a Bruce Springsteen concert, and a German immigrant's introduction to America. Before we get to the stories, Thank you so much for supporting Tell Us Something during our annual fundraiser, Missoula Gives. We made 52% of our $5,000 goal. That means 44 people donated almost $2,600. Thank you all so much. $2,600 covers the cost of producing 10 podcasts. I'm so grateful to everyone who supported the fundraiser. Thank you. Last night, I attended a listening party for a new podcast you should check out. The Willard Podcast already has four episodes, and they are all worth listening to. I was blown away by the stories you'll hear when you listen. For one semester, students at the University of Montana's Advanced Audio class reported stories in and about one unique public high school, Willard High School. Willard is the only alternative high school in Montana, and the Willard Podcast explores the history of Willard High School and takes a look at the transition the Willard family is currently undergoing. Check out this fantastic podcast wherever you get your podcasts or stream it online at willardpodcast.com. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on March 20th, 2018 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Right Place, Right Time. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. After living as an exchange student in Paraguay and meeting her host family's nephew, Rafael, Jane Doherty loses track of her love for years. All of that changes one afternoon with the arrival of a blue airmail letter in her New York City apartment mailbox. Jane calls her story Blue Airmail Letter or International Exchange Paraguayan Style. Thanks for listening. I went to rural Paraguay when I was 19. Very rural Paraguay, no running water, no electricity. I went to live with a host family and work as a volunteer. I was building latrines and teaching community sanitation, though I knew nothing about either of those topics. (laughs) And I also fell desperately in love with a young man named Miguel, who was the nephew of the host family I was living with. Four years later, I went down to rural Paraguay again to see the family, but really mostly to see Miguel, who had been writing me these letters for four years, telling me how much he loved me and et cetera, et cetera. So it was the beginning of a year-long gap year trip around South America, right? I'm going to do this on a shoestring, and then I'm going to go back to the U.S. and start my real life, though I had zero idea what that might look like. I have a lovely reunion with the family. They're all very excited that I'm back to see Miguel, (laughs) which I hadn't understood was going to be part of the uh, reunion. Everybody, when I first went down there, it was all very secretive. When I went back down there, the taxi driver who dropped me off at the house said, oh, are you the one who was in love with Miguel? So it's a bit unexpected. (laughs) Yeah, that's me, I guess. So we had a few days with his family, and then we decided we needed a bit of privacy. So we took a bus to a town called Ciudad del Este, which is this completely mad, lawless town on the border of Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil. He was living in this one-room little house, and there was a bathroom just down, come out outside the house and make a quick right, and that was the bathroom with electric shower, which was terrifying. He was living there and working as a carpenter for this big, fancy, affluent Paraguayan family. It didn't take very long for it to become clear that Miguel was no longer in love with me. 
and in fact didn't even seem to like me very much, which was a bit disorienting since I was in Paraguay in the middle of a town I'd never been to before. So I packed up my things and heartbroken and confused and more than a little embarrassed, I took myself across town to another servant's quarters where his cousin Rafael and his aunt Juana were living and working. So it's this little one-room house that had three beds, conveniently for me. And we spent, they made me very welcome and they said, stay as long as you like and make the plans for the rest of your trip. So during that, I was very sleep deprived and stressed out and confused and um, Raphael would, in the mornings, he would check on my sleep and he would come from the big house. He would bring me cafe con leche and then he would come home on his lunch break from work and see how things were going. Was I eating? Was I making my plans? Did I need anything? And then we'd spend our evenings together chatting about this and that. It's probably not going to be too much of a surprise to, <laughs> to say that at the end of that week, I was discovered that I developed some much stronger feelings for Paraguayan number two. Um, <laughs> in spite of every single intention to the contrary. <laughs> so we had some discussion about this and I said, listen, I'm leaving. I'm going to do this trip. I'm going to travel around South America. I've got some jobs lined up. And at the end, I'm going back to the U.S., and I'm not living in Paraguay, and I don't see how... And he's going, yeah, yeah, okay. And he's nodding, and he's listening, and he's rubbing my back, and he's making me cafe con leche. So by the time I got myself on a 15-hour bus ride to Sao Paulo to stay with my uncle, I was desperately in love with my second penniless Paraguayan farm boy. (laughs) But true to my plans, I spent the year traveling and working, and at the end of the year, I saw him once or twice, I think, and then I made what I, in my mind, was a clear break, and I returned to the U.S., where I got a job teaching public elementary school in North Philadelphia, which is scarier than, <laughs> than Ciudad del Este in many ways, and more lawless. And then I got a, a job teaching in public schools in New York City, though I had zero preparation or qualifications or training to do either of those jobs. In my first few years in New York, Rafael and I would have you know, semi-regular contact, maybe four or five letters a year. It took about six weeks for a piece of mail to get from Paraguay to the US, for reasons which still mystify me. It's not like it was 1980. I mean, it was the late 90s. Um, And, uh, you know, during those years, I would... Oh, and by the way, no, he had no access to a landline. I barely had access to email, didn't even know what it was really at the time. And there were no cell phones. So correspondence was limited to letters. And during those years, I dated a little bit, one or two semi-serious relationships, um, and all of them I compared to my, the depth of my feeling for Raphael and what we'd experienced in those short days together, and everything fell short. Um, over time, the amount of contact we had diminished to maybe once a year. Every once in a while, he would figure out a way to call me on his boss's dime from whatever job he was doing after hours, and sometimes we'd have a lovely chat, and sometimes I would see it was a call from Paraguay on my caller ID, and I would avoid it. <laughs> it's just, it was all a bit too much, really. And then sometimes I would fall asleep, cry myself to sleep at night thinking about him. Okay, so cut to my early 30s. I'm single, I'm not, not having any luck meeting a man in my elementary school. And, <laughs> shocking. And, and so I start doing some internet dating, which I do not recommend in New York City. Um, I've tried it a couple of rounds, and it doesn't amount to any good, at least in my experience. And I had one particularly demoralizing blind date which is a story for another time. And I'm, I'm walking into my building. There's a courtyard in my building on 204th and Broadway in northern Manhattan. And 
I start thinking about Raphael, but at this point we haven't had any contact at all in I think about three years, and it's been 10 years since we saw each other. But I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, where is he, what's he do? is he married, does he have a kid? What would it be like if I just got in touch with him out of the blue? Would it be a total interference? Would, be, would there be any point? <laughs> have things really changed that much between when I first said I wasn't doing it? So I'm thinking all these thoughts, and I'm thinking, you know what, I, I would just really love to talk to him. I have no idea how to get in touch with him. I walk into my building, I call the elevator, and I turn around to open my mail, because there's a bank of mailboxes here. And they're inside, not 30 seconds before I've called him so vividly to mind, is Raphael, no, just kidding, he's not, he's not there. It's a, it's, a, it's a blue airmail letter from him. Okay. So I have to say, all these years later, I often wonder what would have happened. Oh, and by the way, the airmail letter had a cell phone number in it, which is, you know, when I went to Paraguay for the first time, there was no running water or electricity, and now Raphael has got a cell phone number. So all these years later, I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't been thinking about him so vividly just right before I got that letter, if I hadn't had such a crappy, crappy date right before I got that letter, and if I didn't take the arrival of that letter as some kind of karmic sign from the gods, right? Like, it, it just seemed too magical to be true. And instead of, what if I'd just taken it as a funny coincidence? And finally, what if the US government would have been willing to just grant him a two-week tourist visa to come and see me in New York City? Uh, it was not happening, and I am a hopeless romantic. I was then, and I think I probably still am. So within five minutes, I'm on the phone with him in my apartment. Within a day, I have a plane ticket to go and see him. Within a month, we're in his parents' little wooden hut in rural Paraguay, and we're telling them <laughs> that we, we're going to get married because that's the only way we can get him into the US legally to give the relationship a try. <laughs> yeah. And so four months later, I went back down to Paraguay, which is in itself another story, a really wacky one with kind of like reality show dashing around the countryside to get all the various documents. But we did it successfully. And before I went down the second time, I told my somewhat skeptical friends and family, um, you know, I've got no idea if this is going to work, but I'm not sure enough that it won't. <laughs> not to give it a try. I figure out what, what I've got to lose. Dating scene in New York is really, <laughs> it's that bad. So, <laughs> so not surprisingly, given our beginnings, and how little we actually knew each other and how very different our experiences were. The marriage didn't last, but we did have a good, lovely run together. And um, while it ended much more messily and painfully than I would have expected from him, given what I knew about the earlier version of him, it also in some ways went exactly as I had hoped and predicted it would, in that he took extremely good care of my heart and my emotional well-being during six really tough teaching years in public schools in New York City. And he got to have a really decent career and is continuing to thrive as a high-level skilled carpenter in New York City. He sends money home to his family on a regular basis. Early in our marriage, he was able to pay for uh, medications for his brother's epilepsy. We crowdsourced a surgery to, for his, a life-saving surgery for one of his nephews. And over the years, my use of my privileged citizenship status and my romantic little heart has really tremendously benefited a lot of really lovely people in rural Paraguay. So I have to say, though I might have hung on and been a bit more patient, had a bit more self-confidence and found a more suitable partner, <laughs> um, I have to say, I think that that blue envelope, given the benefits to all the parties involved, really did arrive at the right place and the right time. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. 
Jane Doherty was born in Southeast England and emigrated to the Philadelphia suburbs with her family when she was 10. She went to college in New York City and went on to teach in public schools there for 15 years. She moved to Missoula in 2012 and teaches second grade Spanish immersion at Paxson Elementary. Our next story comes to us from Ellie Costello. Ellie has a recurring dream in which she hears a man's voice giving her a disturbing message. Later, that voice manifests into reality on a Montana Forest Service road late one night. Ellie calls her story, Nobody to Witness. Thanks for listening. The first time I lived alone, I was 26. I'm the youngest in a family of four, and even as a young adult, always had these big households of friends around me. And when I was 26, I became the caretaker of the Peas Farm, which is a nonprofit farm up in the Rattlesnake, and you should visit it, it's wonderful. And during the day, the Peas Farm was full of life, and there were too many people, actually, to make me happy even in that space. But at night, I was alone. And this didn't bother me at first, maybe until Will, who is our very wonderful mechanic, said, hey, you better make sure you're locking the doors at night, because at one point we had a lot of kooks up here. And that planted a little seed of anxiety. And my anxiety began to build. And I realized, sure, here I was at night, and people knew that I lived here. So no anonymous person in a house by themselves, right there for everyone to know. And one night, one of the farm cats jumped on me and I threw her across the room and I told folks that after that, they weren't allowed in my room just because I was worried I was gonna hurt her. She was a little old. I couldn't actually take the shock again. And this anxiety continued to grow and how it manifested in a big way was through this repetitive dream. I'd wake up to a man's voice saying, you're gonna wish you were dead. I'd open my eyes, and I'd breathe that kind of breath when you're a little kid and you're hiding under the bed playing hide and seek, and the seeker comes in and you try to go so slow. And I would look around my room in the darkness as much as my eyes could move, and I would think, is he here? And after some convincing, I'd get myself up and I'd say, there's nobody coming to save you. And I'd turn on the lights and I'd look through the barn and I'd go to the bathroom and I'd even look in the shower where I was sure he was waiting for me. And it was fine. So this year was about trying new things. And my friend Kate was gonna go do this bike ride up in Whitefish and ride 100 miles for CASA, which is another great organization. And I said, that sounds like a lot of fun, and I want to go do that with you. But I, I have to wait and kind of finish up at the farm, uh, close up hoop houses, put chickens to bed, all of that jazz, before I can drive up to Whitefish. Kate said, okay, I'm going to head up earlier. I'll let you know where I'm staying. And she texted me the Forest Service road number uh, where she was going to sleep later that night so that I could drive up late and park somewhere on that same road in case I overslept. She'd wake me up. We'd go to the race. Friday night, 8.30ish, I'm done, I'm heading out, drive up to Whitefish. Whitefish is a Friday night in the summer and it's a party town and I think, oh goodness, I'm so glad I'm not sleeping here, I would never get any rest. And I keep driving. The road I'm looking for is about 20 miles or so outside Whitefish, so I keep on my way. Find the road number, 
drive up. I'm getting really tired at this point. It's maybe around one. And I see the first pullout. And I think, this is good enough. I'm just going to park here and sleep. Nobody's coming up this way until tomorrow morning, maybe if they're hiking, and I need to be up then anyway. So I pull in with my 2003 Mercury Sable, literally my grandfather's sedan, <laughs> aptly named by my brother, the Silver Fox. I get out of the Silver Fox. I get into the back seat in my black sleeping bag, and... I set the watch on the alarm on my watch, because uh, my cell phone doesn't have service up here, and I go to sleep. And I wake up to a man's voice. And he says, when there's nobody around, there's nobody to witness. And I think, oh, this dream again. And I lie there, and I, I I suddenly realize I can see light through my eyelids. And I open my eyes, and there's headlights coming in through the side of my car over me. And I'm, I'm trying to orient because this has happened to me before, but it's always been in my head. And I hear him scuff his shoe, and. He's behind my car, so he's, he's pulled up and the, the headlights are shining in and he's behind the car and I'm still. And I still try to orient when there's nobody around, there's nobody to witness. So is he talking to somebody or is there more than one guy out there? Well, my bike's on the back of the car. Maybe he's thinking about stealing my bike and he doesn't want to do that. Does he know I'm here? And I manage, underneath my sleeping bag, very slowly to check the time on my watch. 2.08. And he waits. And I wait. Oh my god, I wish I was a fucking man, because then maybe I wouldn't get raped. Does he know I'm here? Maybe that wouldn't matter. Maybe I'd still get raped. I don't know. That's not what you should be thinking about. Should I move? 2.13. He says, so you got to be a witness to yourself. I am still, still. And he is still, still. And I don't know if he's talking to somebody. 2.13, he finally gets into his vehicle. And he waits. And I wait. <sighs> Do I move? Is now the time? Is he leaving somebody there? And he starts to drive away, but then he stops really suddenly, and I am still, still. And 2.22. And he finally drives away, starting back towards the main highway. And I think even if he's left someone there, I can't wait any longer. Maybe he has a gun. I don't know. And in what I think is, you know, a super giant move, I get out of my sleeping bag and in the front seat, and I turn on my car, and I turn on the headlights, and as far as I can see into the darkness around me, there's nobody there. But his car stops and turns around, and the headlights start coming back up the Forest Service road, and he looks at me from the window of his truck. I can't hide anymore. I am there. But he keeps going. 
And I say, I cannot wait for him to figure out what he's gonna do right now. And I take off back down to the highway and I am gone. I am driving back towards Whitefish and I'm still just trying to orient on this experience of what's happening to me. And I see a sign for a campground and I think, oh yeah, 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 I'm supposed to be sleeping. I'm doing a bike race in the morning and I pull off and I start driving up this winding road towards this campground and I come to the first turnout. And there's one of those VFW vans parked there with the pop top and the pop top is popped and I'm like, there's a person there and they don't want me to fuck with them and I don't want them to fuck with me so I am sleeping right here. And so I pull over, I get out of the silver fox, I take my first breath in years and I immediately wet myself. I think, oh, thank goodness, I put on some dry clothes, get back into the back seat of my sedan, get back into my black sleeping bag, and I go to sleep. 6 a.m. comes about, I get up, I go to the race head, my friend Kate is there, and it is not until this moment, this moment of like actually seeing Kate, that I think, you could have been next. You were supposed to be sleeping up that road and she had texted me the wrong Forest Service trail number. And I think, oh my God, I have never been so glad that you were in the right place at the right time. Thanks, Ellie. Ellie Costello has lived and worked in Montana since 2009. Her love of this place is gradually morphing her into every Missoula cliche. Grad student, yoga teacher, distillery cocktailer, distance runner, injured distance runner, small business owner, nonprofit staffer, farmer, and baker, but not a candlestick maker, fly fisherman, or clay artist yet. Currently, she is the director of the Mud Project, where she works with a handful of kind and badass tool librarians. Thanks for listening to the Tell Something Podcast. If you enjoy the Tell Us Something podcast, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please rate and review us, and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you. And thanks to our title sponsors, the Bookstore at the University of Montana a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community. MontanaBookstore.com CabinetParts.com The number one source for cabinet hardware since 1987. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. With fast and easy ordering... Free hinge matching service and same-day shipping, CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. Gecko Designs. The creative crew at Gecko Designs makes awesome logos that are off the hook. They build beautiful mobile-friendly websites for both large and small clients in Missoula and around the country. 
visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Logjam Presents, headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independently and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. I step up and share the next story. I'm a diehard Bruce Springsteen fan living in Gardner, Montana, when Bruce gets the E Street Band back together for a world tour. The closest they come to Gardner is Fargo, North Dakota, and I am determined to see the show. I call this story Land of Hope and Dreams. Sensitive listeners, please know that I use some curse words in this story. In 1984, Bruce Springsteen released Born in the USA. We've got some fans. How many of you have seen Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band? Yeah. Well, I missed that tour. I was 13 years old, and I was on vacation with my family. But it was the first cassette tape I had ever bought, with my paper out money, in fact. And I played that tape all the time, over and over, cover me, cover me. I mean, I just loved that record. And I decided that I was never going to miss a Bruce Springsteen show. And I was living in Akron, Ohio at the time, and so it was about 45 minutes to Cleveland where most of the music was happening. And I went and saw him on the Tunnel of Love show. And you who have been to a Bruce Springsteen show know that it's like a gospel revival. I mean, it is... He talks about all the horrible shit in the world. He sings about all the terrible things. And then he sings about all the love and the hope and the power of rock and roll and the power of sex. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen is a performer like I have never seen. And what a show it was. So then I saw him. He, then he like broke up with the E Street Band and moved to L.A. And he hired studio musicians and, and released this terrible set of records, uh, Lucky Town and Human Touch, my opinion. <laughs> and I saw that tour, and it was good, but it wasn't the E Street Band. And then he did uh, Ghost of Tom Joad, and that was great. Quiet in a theater about this size in Akron, just, uh, just him and a guitar. And then I moved to Gardner, Montana. <laughs> yeah. So he's been without the E Street Band for 10 years, and the Greatest Hits record comes out, and I think he's going to get the band back together. And in fact, he does, and he, he announces a world tour. The closest he's coming to Gardner is fucking Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> the fucking Fargo Dome. And I say, fuck it. And I buy four tickets. And I don't have a car. So I go down to the Blue Goose, and I say, hey, Jay Todd, and, and he pours me a beer. He's the bartender there. He has the best jukebox that I've ever seen. Just soul records, gospel records, rock and roll. Miles Davis on a jukebox. I mean, awesome. This guy knows music. And I say, Jay Todd, do you want to go with me to Fargo? You have a car. And he says, have you seen my car? <laughs> it's a 1986 Subaru Outback with, like, maybe three tires that work. I don't even know how I can drive down into Yellowstone every day. So J. Todd's not taking me to Fargo. And I asked John, and John says, no, he doesn't have the time off work, can't get time off work. 
So I go back into the park where I was working at the time as a park ranger, and I go into the admin building where my friends Carrie and Mark work. They're bear biologists in the park. And I ask them if they want to go, because I know that Carrie has a truck. <laughs> and Carrie says, yes, he'll go. I have to give them the tickets. They're not going to buy them from me. Okay. And so Carrie and his girlfriend sit in the front, and it's one of those old Chevy Suburbans that only has two seats, or at least two seats that worked. So Mark Beal and I sat in the back of the truck with a topper on it in November <laughs> to drive to Fargo. And you know how long it is to Fargo from Gardner? It's 12 hours. There were no cell phones. There's nothing to do. You can't hear because the, no the road noise is so loud. The wind, I mean, the windows in the topper, aren't, they don't close. So we've got blankets, and we're like snuggling up to each other and trying to sleep, but we can't sleep because it's so janky and loud. And we get to the Fargo Dome. We might have, like, I think we stopped and got some to eat, but like, the show was going to start. And so in we go. And this is the story of my life when I go to shows. I always get the nosebleed seats because like, I can never get in fast enough, get in line fast enough to buy the seats. And nosebleed seats, for those of you who don't know, are the seats that are at the highest elevation in the arena. And you might get a nosebleed. Yeah, yeah. And you might get a nosebleed because of the altitude. So that's me. I'm always up there with you guys. Mark and Carrie and Christy all decide they're going to go to the seats. I get sucked into the merch table because hoodies. <laughs> but the hoodies are $80 and the t-shirts are $30 and I'm not going to spend $30 on a t-shirt. That's ridiculous in 1999. And so I, I buy a keychain, which I still have. And I get up to the seats, and Carrie and Mark and Christy are all just looking forward, and they're not looking at me. And I walk up to the seats, and I say, hey, what's going on? And they say, and so I notice there's this really big, like, 20-foot-tall dude sitting behind him. He's in an all-black suit, big guy. I look back at him, and he goes, don't look at me. And I'm, all right, I'm not, I'm not looking at you. He says, do you want to move to the front? And then he says, stop following me. And there's these people walking up the steps towards him. And, and they say, we're not following you. And they sit down. And they knew something that we didn't know. They knew that this guy worked for Bruce Springsteen. And he was about to give us a very special gift. And, but we didn't know that. And, and so he's sitting there. And he says, I need your tickets. And we're like, What? So we all get our tickets out and hand them to him while he hands us, sort of at the same time, new tickets that haven't been torn yet. And so we're like, oh, okay. But we don't have time to look to see where the seats are because then he says, here, you need this wristband. And he puts these wristbands on our wrist. Don't lose it. Don't sell it. You need it to get to your seats. And then he like disappears into the ether. <laughs> so... We go down to the usher, and she goes, these are good seats. And then she sends it. She tears the tickets. She sends us to the next person. These are really good seats. That person walks us down to a gated area and opens the gate and walks us to the front row. 
we're sitting, we were in the nosebleeds, and now we're in the front row, and, and it's this really interesting thing starts happening because our big 20-foot-tall dude has been making his rounds all the way to the arena, and he's been kicking people down to the front. And what's happening is as they're coming down, they've got this look of confusion on their face. And as they realize what's happening, you can see, like, joy wash over them. And they become enraptured by the possibility of what's going to happen that night. And this little community starts to build. And strangers are talking to each other and saying, can you believe this? Where are you from? Gardner, Montana. <laughs> and there were these two guys there from Pittsburgh or Philly or someplace. And they were, they were all dressed in black. And if there had been cell phones at the time, they would have been twittering their asses off. They were just not engaging with anybody. They were, I mean, come to find out that they bought their tickets $800 a piece. And they're yelling at each other throughout the show, like, man, the, the Cleveland show was better. This tour sucks. I can't believe it. It's like, shut up. Everybody else is having a dance party, man. Bruce comes out. He opens with the ties that bind off the river. I mean, just rocking and rolling. Hand up, just playing that guitar, screaming as loud as he can. We're all dancing our asses off, drenched in sweat by the end of the show. You know, Bruce Springsteen's show, for those of you who have never been, Three and a half hours long. I mean, it is a huge, it's an endurance race, man. It's just <laughs> incredible. And so he closes the show. He goes, you know, the, the, um, <sighs> the encore comes and he plays, you know, Born to Run and, and, and Hungry Heart. And he plays Land of Hope and Dreams, which is one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. And I'm just feeling so grateful that my friends were in the right place at the right time. That was fun. I haven't done that in a long time. If you don't know me, I'm Mark Moss, director and founder of Tilla Something. I grew up near Akron, Ohio, and moved to Montana via Yellowstone National Park in 1997. I landed in Missoula in 2003 and have been helping people get their stories heard at Tell Us Something since 2011. Our final story comes to us from Kat Werner. Kat came to the United States as a German exchange student and is placed in Yenton, South Dakota, where she gets a true picture of America. Kat calls her story, Welcome to the Heartland. Thanks for listening. When I was 17, I was, like a lot of teenagers, pretty pissed off and angry at the world, but particularly at my parents. And I could not get far enough away from them. I decided to do something radical and leave my motherland behind. At 17, I figured that universal healthcare and free college tuition, and a minimum of four weeks paid vacation time. Who needs that shit? <laughs> so I decided to sign up for a high school exchange program in the greatest country of the world, America. So my vision of America went a little bit like this. 
I was going to be paired up with a host family, maybe in New York City, and I would visit Ellis Island and see the Statue of Liberty, like so many foreigners and immigrants had before me. Or maybe I would spend my exchange year in San Francisco and I'd cross the Golden Gate Bridge. Maybe I would rub elbows with celebrities in Hollywood. I quite vividly remember the day that I found out where I was going to land for my exchange year. I was walking to my friend Jenny Rohrbach's house in my hometown of Nuremberg, Germany. And this was in 2000, so cell phones had just become popular right after dial-in internet and Destiny's Child. Yeah, yeah right. And my family, we had a family cell phone back then. So we shared a cell phone. It was one of those Nokia things, like really big. My grandma, Grandma Werner, she used to call them baby caskets because they were so big. I literally had to like hold them with two hands. And they were awesome. On a side note, they were sweet. Like you could throw them, kick them. They never broke. They also never died. You charge them like once a year and the battery lasts forever. It was awesome. And so I'm walking to my friend's house. My phone is ringing. It's my dad. And I pick it up, and he's all excited, and he says, Kati, Kati, we just got the call. We found out where you're going to go for your exchange year. And I say, probably all pissed off, I'm probably, well, fucking tell me already. <laughs> and, and he's like, well, he kind of chuckles a little bit, and he's like, well, your mom and I, we had to look it up on a map, like a literal map. <laughs> it was kind of hard to find. You're going to Yankton, South Dakota. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> so, thanks for the support, everybody. That's, yeah. Okay, so here's a little geography lesson for y'all who are like, where in the world is Yankton, South Dakota? Yankton, South Dakota is in the southeastern corner of South Dakota. It borders Nebraska. There literally is a bridge across the Missouri River, that the Meridian Bridge, you can walk or drive over and you can end up in Nebraska. There is a lot of, of cornfields and lots of gravel roads and lots of flat land and lots of just nothing to do, especially for teenagers. So teenagers spend a lot of time just, you know, cruising around, booze cruises, shooting guns, Second Amendment, things, things like that. Smoking pot before going to first period Spanish class in the morning. And, you know, Yankton is about 15,000 people, so just, just a tick smaller than my town of about a million. And, I mean, I'd lie if I said I wasn't just a little bit disappointed, but I figured, you know, it's all about the attitude. Like everything in life, I, you know, I'll, I'll get behind this. And so after my initial disappointment, I show up in Yankton, South Dakota, and I walk into the high school that my first day, and only high school in town, about 1,500 students, home of the Bucks and the Gazelles. <laughs> yeah. And I actually, I got a really warm welcome from my new American peers. They had a lot of questions for me, really, well, really important, valid questions. They wanted to know if we had television in Germany, and if we were watching TV in black and white or in color. 2000. Um, they also wanted to know if Britney Spears and NSYNC sang in German or in English. 
And really important question. You're from Germany. How many Americans did your Nazi grandpa kill in World War II? Ouch, yeah. Yeah. I figured out pretty quickly, like pretty much the first day I got there, that Americans had a really hard time pronouncing my name, Katarina. And so I got a nickname. I got stuck with the name to this day, Kat. And I actually really liked it. It turned out to be really helpful, especially in basketball practice. Because by the time my teammates were done slaughter, like yelling my name, slaughtering my name, pa trying to pass the ball, like, Katarina! Right? The game, like the pass was done, the game was over, so it all worked out great. But I did, I did a lot of extracurricular activities. I participated in drama and I ran track and, you know, one acts and I also played basketball because I had played some basketball in Germany and I, I figured, I'm good at this, I got this, like, I'm an athlete, you know. So looking back now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, basketball coaches probably flipped a coin to figure out who was going to get stuck with a German girl for the season because, I mean, okay, I had no idea how serious you Americans take high school sports. <laughs> Literally, every game, no matter if it was freshman, junior varsity, every game felt like it was the semi-final in the football World Cup. Germany playing Brazil. <laughs> Germany winning, of course. So, although I was a senior in high school, I ended up in the sophomore basketball team. Didn't hurt my ego. was fun. And Coach T, our coach back then, he put me in exactly twice. I actually played twice, life, on the field. I know you guys call it court, but yeah. Um, the one time he put me in, we were so far behind that I could not fuck up the game any further. And then the other time, we were so far ahead that, yeah, sweet, golden. And I actually scored. I actually scored, and it turned out that I scored on the wrong side of the court. Yeah. Valuable addition to the gazelles. <laughs> you know, another thing my American peers really helped me with during my high school exchange year was um, developing my vocabulary. I literally learned new words every single day. So this one time, it was this winter in South Dakota, freaking cold there, right? Like just Midwest, <laughs> cold. And I'm in a car, cruising around, all the windows rolled down, smoking old golds. Because <laughs> you know what? It doesn't matter how cold it is. When you're a teenager, you smoke whenever you want to smoke. And so I'm in the car with my free, three friends, Eric Sage, Phil Gorman, and Kurt Tweedy. <laughs> and I'm actually sick. I have a sore throat. I have a cold. I'm not feeling well. I'm smoking, though. I'm not feeling well. And I turn to my friends and I say, <clears throat> you guys, <clears throat> man, how do you say, how do you, how do you say was my go-to phrase. <laughs> how do you say, you know those things, <clears throat> like the things that you put into your mouth when you throw it, like the things you suck on, and okay, I know where your mind is going right now. <laughs> Thank God that the word penis in English is literally spelled and pronounced almost the, pretty much the same than in German. So that one saved me. But I'm like, yeah, what are, what are those things called? Like my throat really hurts, and my friend Sage, that fucker, he turns to me, and he looks at me, and in all sincerity, he's like, Kat, I'm so sorry your throat hurts. Those things are called turds. 
let's go to the gas station and buy you some turds. So we roll up to the gas station, cork and bottle, in Yankton, South Dakota. And I walk in, and I walk up to the counter, and I go to the lady at the counter and I say, excuse me, miss, could you please help me find some turds for my throat? And she looks at me, and she looks outside, and she sees three teenage boys just losing their shit in the car. Good day. Little did I know, that day, trying to buy turds at the gas station, that eight years later, one of those turd balls actually would become my husband. And another few years later, I would become a citizen to the United States of America. <laughs> and that we would call Missoula our home. So despite all odds, against all odds, Yankton, South Dakota definitely ended up being the right place at the right time for this German girl. Thanks, Kat. Kat is an immigrant from Germany who proudly represents her country's stereotypes. She loves being on time and will tell you what she thinks whether you ask for it or not. Kat is an experienced globetrotter and you will find her adventuring and fighting for positive social change both in Montana and around the world. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company. Locally owned and operating four stations. The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. You 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlightened Lab Float Center. Enlightened Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Martin McCain Woodworks and Design. Learn more about Martin and his work at Facebook.com slash Martin McCain Woodworks. Missoula Federal Credit Union. Find them at MissoulaFCU.org. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at CashForDrunkersMusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events. Those of you who download the podcasts and most especially to the storytellers, Jane Doherty, Ellie Costello, me, Mark Moss, 
and Kat Verner. The next live Tell Us Something event is June 13th at the Wilma. The theme is risk, and we are still taking pitches for that show. To pitch your story, call 406-203-4683. Pitch deadline is May 15th. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org.